You're listening to the Modern People Leader Podcast. Today's episode will be a part of our People Leader Series, where we go behind the scenes with today's top HR leaders and talk to them about how they've gotten to where they're at and what they really do every day. Our guest today is Femily Howe, Gender Equity Advisor from Femily On The Go. MPL family, stop what you're doing and take five seconds to go subscribe to the MPL Weekly Digest. Every week, we'll share the top three takeaways from the episode along with the full transcript. Just go to the show notes for this episode and click the link to subscribe. And now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Happy Tuesday, guys. Happy hey. Tuesday. It's Tuesday, but time. it feels like a Monday. Yeah, I was like, wait yeah. a second. I'm, I'm not sure that that's a thing. That's a saying, but it is a happy Tuesday, at least for me. So hopefully you guys are happy also. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm definitely happy about uh, today's conversation. Today's guest was introduced to us by Kim Rohrer at Oyster, which that conversation in itself was a phenomenal conversation we had late last year. So, Femily, welcome to the Modern People Leader. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I love Kim. I saw that she was on. I was like, I need to get in touch with you, too. It was such a good pod. You're really pushing the envelope out there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's nice to hear that. We, it, you know, we have a, obviously we have a bias because you know, we're doing this every week. So it's good to get a little affirmation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but also know, it's easy to kind of just get stuck in our own little world because, you know, we're editing, we're planning for our episodes. Like it's yep. tough to even, you know, listen to all of the podcasts out there, but, um, yeah. Well, I listen to a lot of HR and people and leadership podcasts and yours is really, yours is really heading towards the future as opposed to regurgitating the past. So I think we'll do that here today too. We'll take it. Yeah. And and it's on a topic that Daniel and I, this is near and dear to us. It's been a, it's been a minute since we've had a chat about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but mm-hmm. I think this is the first episode that we really zeroed in on the topic of gender equality, or at least had a guest whose focus was even more so like on that dimension of diversity. So super psyched to to have that conversation today with you. Cool. Before we jump in, we have a few rituals that we have on the Modern People Leader. Our first is good news stories. Uh, we share a personal or work-related story from the past week or two, show a little gratitude, kick mm. things off in a positive way. Mm. So uh, so who wants to to kick us off? I can go. So uh, usually I go work-related, but today I'm going to go personal. So my little brother last week, he calls me on Wednesday afternoon, and he works for American Airlines, so he gets free airfare. And he tempts me with a quick little weekend trip. He has this little app where he can see what the best bets are because it's flying standby, right? So he's like, it's either San Francisco, New York, or LA. And California, weather wasn't great this weekend. So I was like, let's do New York. So I book my dog sitter. I you know, start making plans for the weekend. He calls me. I can't remember if it was that night or the next day. Hey, like I don't... He starts making excuses for why he can't go. Come to find out he had friends coming into town. So he bailed on me. So I already had the dog sitter set up and one of my best friends lives in Brooklyn. So I called him immediately and I was like, hey, I know this is super last minute, but would you be willing to host me this weekend, you know, just to hang out? So he said yes. And I'm so glad that I went, you know, I hadn't, he's been living there for three years now and I've never visited him. So it was cool just to get like a little peek into his life and hang out with him and his partner. But um, yeah, had a really good week. What a, what a classic younger brother move, right? <laughs> Mateo, geez. And that's coming from the younger brothers. So I totally yeah, it gets me all excited relate. and then dips. I totally fails on me. Mm-mm. No, <laughs> as an eldest sibling, that's a hard, no, that story really hits close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Emily, you got this? You yeah, to take- totally. Let's see. My heart was warmed so much this Sunday because uh, I went to a clothing swap that I started 10 years ago when I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. 
and it's still going strong. And it's just a room full of such body positive, all ages, all kinds of women and queer people. And we're just trading clothes and accessories and books and shoes and everything that's going to take us into this new year. And it was so lovely. People go around and they share stories of each item they're trying to swap. And so it's really a storytelling exercise where you're hearing from so many different kinds of people of why don't I want this dress anymore? It's still beautiful, but it reminds me of either this great moment that I want to pass along the positive vibes or the moment where someone else can wear it and not have to think about it. I mean, it was just so heartfilling. Yeah. Oh my God. That sounds fabulous. Mm-hmm. I bet that was what a, so what a great intro and that this has been going on for 10 years. Yes. Yes. And is it, it's like a monthly thing or yeah, it's quarterly, quarter- luckily not quarterly. monthly it's quarterly. And I was able, another uh, proud moment is I was able to hand it off. I had started it and ran it for eight years or so. And then I was like, I've a little bit run out of steam. I want to focus on other things and people from within the club picked it up. And so they kept it going. So that's also another win. <laughs> Hey, yeah. Yeah. When you get to pass it along and see right. the next iteration of it, that's, that's so awesome. So good. Well, I, that leaves me. And so my good news is I, three years ago, well, I guess two years ago when my partner and I moved in together, she was not a, a bike person, like a road bike person. And I feel like the further you get into adulthood, you're either, it's like dogs, you're either a bike person and you're all in or you're really not about it. And so she was not a bike person when we first, when we first moved in together. And I love like that, that form of like athletic activity and fitness. It just gives me a lot of joy and just true wellness vibes. And this, this Saturday we went for an 18 mile ride together, which is pretty substantial. Yeah. And she, I mean, didn't, didn't miss a beat and it was 70 degree weather in Austin on Saturday. It just was absolutely glorious. So what is that? Like a two hour ride? Yeah. It's a two hour ride. And of course, you know, I, we strategically plan, I don't drink, but she does. So we strategically planned a stopping by a new brewery on our way home. And so got some foods, drinks. It, It was, it was really nice. My second is I fought off, this is more work-related, I fought off the Sunday scaries, which was hard because I got a lot of some big things possibly happening work-related. And um, and so I was able to, to fight it off, did some meditations and like journaling, got it kind of out of my head into kind of the, the world. And I was able to, to fully observe MLK day yesterday. I, I, it was a day off for the company and Mm -hmm. as CEO, you can always justify why you need to work. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was, it was nice taking that time off and just kind of reflecting on what the day means. So that's my second part of my two part good news. So, so family walk us through your story and you've got a really interesting story. The, I feel like the, the clothing swap, I I didn't even know about that. (laughs) And it just adds to kind of the the mystery, but you've got a, you've got a great story. And so why don't you share that with our audience and how, you know, your journey led to you becoming one of Silicon Valley's top diversity and gender equity advisors. Yeah, totally. So my interest has always been in gender equity and women's advancement. I mean, even as early as elementary school, I was trying to rally the girls against smaller inequities. Like we had to help the boys put their stuff away after recess. And I was like, what? (laughs) So I created an activism moment and rolled that right back. So I got a taste for it pretty early. (laughs) I didn't know this, right? So, uh, but we see those kinds of things in the workplace today. So anyways, I always had an interest in women's advancement. And so I studied it in college against the, I would say, horror of my parents who were like, what in the world is someone going to be able to do with a women's and gender studies degree? And so I studied that, got my master's in that. And then I have a pretty low tolerance for risk in the financial, in my own personal finance department. So I went into management consulting basically and figured out that I loved knowing how businesses worked on the inside. It's a very strange interplay of systems and how messy humans actually work together. And so I was helping companies change mainly on like, here's your new payroll system. Let's get everybody on it. Right. It was, it wasn't that interesting in terms of what we were doing, but I liked the 
consulting aspect. And so I got a project working. My first gender project was helping the lean in and McKinsey people with the report, helping them get out the message about the report. Women in the work in the workplace is the world's largest report on women in the workplace and what's sort of holding women back, women of all kinds. And so I was deep in the research there, figuring out how to let people know about it. And so I learned all the things that help companies and that hinder them in terms of women's progress. So I slowly started taking on clients that wanted to do specifically gender change within companies. So advancing women and no longer wasting their money on diversity efforts that don't really work. And so I did that and that's what I do today. So I specifically, my clients are all, they're all tech and lots of them are in Silicon Valley where I live. And so that's my focus. I think sometimes I take on other male majority companies like law and finance. And I just had a science company, um, but more and more, they're all having a, a tech flair. Yeah. I love it. And so in a past life, I don't talk about this often, not be, not for any reason other than it just, it was a small kind of segment of my career, but I spent a year and a half, two years as a diversity officer for a, an affiliate of the company that I, I worked for. And and so I'm curious, as, yes. a, as a former diversity officer, how do you describe the work you do to your friends and family? Yeah, there's two. Pieces. To that uncle yeah. who doesn't totally get it at the dinner. Yeah. Like, how, do, how do you describe what so you So the do? uncle who doesn't totally get it, I would say. So I'm not sure if, if you know this, but sometimes women are not paid as the same as men in companies. And sometimes their talents and their smart ideas are overlooked and they sort of get shuffled to the side or sometimes there's bad sort of sexist jokes that happen to women in the workplace. And so I go in and I help companies get better so that everybody can have a welcoming, fair experience at work. Yeah. That's what I say Love to it. the uncle, <laughs> to people in Silicon Valley. I more say, and this is kind of edgy because it, it like winks at politics, but I say I help well-meaning left-leaning tech executives make their companies work for everybody so that what their companies are actually like matches what their diversity statement says they're already like. Ooh. And so I'm calling up that it's, I'm not really doing the heavy convince of someone who is happy that their company is major majority male or majority white at the top. I'm helping those who already put out a DEI statement. Generally it was two or three years ago and they're not living up to it uh, inside mm -hmm. once you peek under the hood. Yeah, it's like, you know, I forget what the saying is, but like fishing, fishing with a shotgun or whatever, that must be so a lot of clients for you. Shooting fish in a barrel. Shooting <laughs> fish in a barrel. Yeah. Your sill cycle. Yeah. Uh, you know, start using yours, Stephen. Fishing with a shotgun. Oh my gosh. I mean, sorry, I'm not great yeah. with the sayings, but you know what I mean? I feel yeah. like that is a, yeah. you know, you're, you're in a good space to be, if that's kind of how, uh, what, what your target customer is, who your target customer is. And so yeah. why, why should we be jealous of your day job? I mean, I'm jealous of my day job because <laughs> I used to work in a regular business for a regular boss. And I used to get the Sunday scaries and I used to have to go there every Monday. And that just did not fit my personality. And so I babysat my way into this job. And every day I feel so thankful that I picked a path that was right for me. There's a lot of conversation and I'm sure some of your listeners are hearing the, the command of like leap and the net will appear. I know a lot of your audience probably wants to go hang up a shingle and be consultants at some point based on all the internal knowledge that they have from working inside companies. And like the only path that you hear loudly is leap and the net will appear. And that's BS for so many of us who don't have a huge safety net, right? Like there's not a safety net that's just going to appear for so many of us. And so I, and I say jealous, but I think it's proud. I'm just proud of the fact that I baby stepped my way into it and went against the norm of the leap. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is is a scary a scary leap for yeah. for some of us. It's scarier than others, just because we may not have the privilege or may not have the resources, exactly. whatever it may be. And so I yeah. I love that. I think that is something to be proud of. And I can relate to that as well. Like I, uh, I baby stepped my way into doing the Modern People Leader full time, 
And you're right. I mm-hmm. I used to get the the Sunday scaries and and now that every yeah. Monday I'm I'm logging into my computer and I'm doing this work, I yeah. don't I don't feel that anymore. No. It's it, it's definitely nice. Yep. So to your point that there are a lot of companies out there that I I think you described it as well-meaning and left-leaning and they have, they've they've typically put out like a diversity statement a few years ago. So I'm I'm willing to bet a good amount of money that you've had a busy past couple of years, you know, just looking back at the pandemic and all of the attention that DEI has, has gotten over the last few years. Just curious, like what, what has it been like being a diversity and equity advisor during that time? Yeah. So the the first thing I'll say is that my work generally, I focus on advancing women in the workplace, and this is women of all kinds. And I also look at race and orientation while I'm in there, right? Intersectionality. So over the past years, there's been a tremendous spike on looking at racial diversity. And so one thing that I want to make clear as a white person is that I don't take on racial equity and anti-racism and racial diversity initiatives in the workplace because I'm not the right person to lead that work. There are dozens slash hundreds slash thousands of people of color who are diversity consultants who are incredible, who have both the art and science background, like the, the formal training in those areas, as well as the experiential knowledge, the having been in lots of the different seats, experiencing those microaggressions, the being looked over for various roles, the not getting promoted as fast as white peers. So I have had a very busy year passing off race specific work. And so people like people see my white face and think, oh, she's not threatening because they still have stereotypes about that. It's more risky to talk to a person of color about race. And so I, I don't, I get a lot of calls, but I, I, I send them off to folks like Dr. Breeze Harper and Dr. Kinjet Page who are in the field for sure. Yeah. So when we met, I guess a month ago at this yeah. point, one of the things that I was really excited to dig into was the, you can't ask that. So I think this is a presentation that you give to people from time to time. Can you just explain what that, what that segment is? Yeah, totally. So I give a keynote talk to companies who are, who are hard to work, right? It's not a standalone because diversity trainings on their own don't work. News, news bulletin has to be the first in many steps to really change the fabric and the policies of your company. But as the first step, I do a keynote talk called Allyship 2.0. So it's not like, hey, folks, there's a problem. Wake up that this is for companies, again, who that have a statement that really wish they were doing better in terms of diversity inclusion. So the first half is about how to be an ally at the more at the deeper level. And then the second half is you can't ask that. So it's people bringing their quote unquote, what they would think is a dumb question into the room, because in the current era, asking any questions about race, gender, and orientation can make someone, all of us feel, feel dumb or feel like we should know it already. And so I have people submit them secretly beforehand because the first time I tried it, I was like, well, let's just all share on zoom or in this open room, your yeah. dumbest questions about race. And they were like, no, <laughs> no. So now we get these beforehand. Yeah. And so I know you were asking what, what are these kinds of questions, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So the one that a lot of leaders are thinking due to socialization and just not knowing more and not knowing better is a lot of white leaders are wondering how can, so I want to make it more gender inclusive. I want to make it more racially inclusive, but I don't want to lower the bar. They say, I want to still have, we need a quality candidate though. And so it's obviously implied that as soon as you open the door beyond the privileged classes that you already have in there, the the white men, for example, that you are going to be lowering the bar. And so this is, I'm trying not to say it's a boneheaded way to think about it, but it's a, we've all been fed this boneheaded narrative that white men should be running everything in our world. Right. And so the better way to look at this, how I answer this question is if you think about, so of course you want top talent at your company. You, if you have the, all the people out there applying for a job in your current talent pipeline, there's a bell curve of them. Some have a horrible resume and track record. And obviously we don't want to be even talking about them. Then there's this huge lump, this mountain in the middle of just your average and slightly above average and like pretty above average kind of candidates. And we're not even talking about looking at those people we're talking about. So I get it. Your company wants the tiny, the sort of tip 
of the iceberg, the tip of the graph, the top talent people to come to your company, right? We only are talking about that group. What I'm mentioning is that because your pipeline only goes to the people it's currently going to, you're missing out on this huge pipeline of, for example, women and for example, people of color of all genders that we're not talking about the bad resumes or the mediocre resumes or the the average. We're talking about another bell curve on top of the one you're already using where that spiky part adds to the spiky part of people that you already have within your company. So you're in essence, expanding the pool of top talent applicants. So what it means is you're already missing all these top talent applicants. If you don't expand into the top talent tiers of women and POC engineers or whatever you're looking for, that's a big one. Yeah. And, and I guess when you have that response on, on these, you can't ask that people typically get it. Is there still some skepticism? Like what's, what's no, they're like, Oh my God, I never thought about it that way. Where do we find these people? Of course that's the next, right? Because yeah, yeah, the pipeline, right. You're like, there's two kinds of pipelines. There's like the industry-wide pipeline where you look at the numbers of people coming out of grad school and other training programs, et cetera, to come into your field. Right. And so generally the number of women in your company should at least reflect the number of women who are in your industry generally. And of course we all know you don't have to have been in the industry to be a great worker in many roles in many companies. And so that adds another way in which you can have more women working in your company. But the other pipeline that I'm talking about is more of like the talent pipeline. So like, where are your specific recruiters at your exact company finding people? And so we only have so much time in the day and so many kinds of networks. And so the pipeline is as it's however wide or narrow as it is, but Every single company is missing out on talent who are women and who are people of color and queer and trans, et cetera. Lots of marginalized people are getting overlooked in the search. And so you find them in a variety of ways. First of all, you incentivize the people who work in your company who are already of marginalized identities to engage with you on outreach and interviewing and connecting with other peers in the field that are from similar marginalized backgrounds. And you give them a bonus, like the recruiting bonus should be triple or quadruple, depending on how big your problem is, uh, how big your lack of diversity is. You should have a recruiting bonus. That's a lot more for bringing in someone who's a top talent POC or top talent woman who accepts a job in a part of your company that doesn't have representative numbers, for example. And for those employees that that you're incentivizing to yeah. help with recruiting and to take on yeah. interviews, do you tell them what what you're trying to accomplish by having them, you know, take these interviews, or do you just pick them and not let them know what's going on? A lot of people don't like to talk about race or gender or yeah. these identity things because it can make them feel awkward and like wading yeah. through this awkwardness is the only way into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but If you pick women out of the blue, all of a sudden you start picking women to be engaged in the engineering recruiting process where it's mostly been men before the women are going to know something's up. Like women are not, not thinking about gender. So you're just not addressing a thing that's already an elephant in the room. And then that's way weirder than saying to them, Hey, look, we know that you've noticed you're the only woman in a meeting or you're the only woman on your team. We know that's not ideal. We want to work to change it. We're going to give you 5K to do this project with us, additional bonus to work with us and do some recruiting outreach to be the face of your team, to be in the interviews, to help us write the job description so that they would have appealed to you more, et cetera. We're going to give you this bonus if you reach out to your female friends, et cetera. Yeah. No, as a, as a person of, of color, I've, yeah. I've definitely been picked to do culture interviews quite a bit. And I've always yeah. wondered, I, are they picking me for that reason? And yeah. I'm sure that that's part of it, but um, yeah, I'm just curious, like if you let people know why that you're selecting them to be a part of that, that, that search committee or that interview committee. Yeah. I can always tell how ready a company is to really engage with this work. If they're not willing to, to share things with their company that are specifically about race and gender. I mean, that is the, 
the easiest task of all this change is is having is the CEO or founder writing people and saying, look, we have fallen short in terms of our numbers of women. That's very clear when you look around the room. We clearly have no, this is example from my exact clients, like we clearly have no black or Latinx designers or developers, et cetera, in this company. And so we want to do something about it. We have a plan and here's what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. We're going to track numbers. And if people in your works who are in underrepresented categories, please connect them to us. Please connect them to recruiting. We obviously only want top talent. And so therefore it's top talent. And also they happen to be a woman, right? So it's not because they're a woman, we're not accepting someone who's a mediocre engineer who is a woman. That's the way, then it's because she's a woman. We're accepting them because they're a top talent person and they happen to be a woman who's also an underrepresented type of person in our company. So it's not like we're quote unquote, lowering the bar. So before we move on, so yeah. share with us some of the other greatest hits. Oh my God. Some of the other, you can't ask that questions that you get. Yeah, totally. I mean, so the one about the pipeline is like, how do we expand the pipeline? Another one that I'm getting more recently is about misgendering. So using someone's pronouns that are not their pronouns that were either their pronouns before or just not the right pronouns. Um, mm -hmm. How important is it that we get this right? That's a question I get. Like, is it just a preference? Like what if everyone wants to change their name? So people just, people have these questions. And so my answer is twofold. The first answer is it's illegal to repeatedly misgender someone. People have the right to expect that their genders and their current name, right? If they did a name change, be used, um, that people try their very best to use people's proper names and pronouns and that repeated misuse of it is now illegal. So first of all, let's get our companies legal. And if the changing hearts and minds thing is not enough, then surely the legal argument will be. The other question that I get is about microaggressions. It's similar. So people ask, is microaggressions, similarly, is it a really big deal? Like we got a lot of things. We're trying to move fast as a company. Like how can we take time to do microaggressions training or to get people's pronouns right, et cetera. The fact about microaggressions is it, the name micro makes you think it's small, but the word micro, it just means one-to-one. -one. Like in microeconomics is a one-to-one -one exchange of money and macroeconomics is the big picture, right? So microaggressions mean it's one-to-one. -one. It doesn't mean that it's small or tiny or not going to substantially affect someone. In fact, psychological research shows that when you are subject to a microaggression, such as a black woman professor friend of mine is always mistaken for the black woman secretary in her office and vice versa. And that's just ridiculous. And what it does is it psychologically reminds her of all of the other times. It plugs right into that neural network of all the other times where she was misnamed, where people didn't know who she was, where people didn't take the time to remember who she was, where people didn't care enough to learn the difference between two different in the office, et cetera. So it brings about a compilation of all of the different times that similar disrespects happened. So another one that I think yeah. I've commonly, I don't think I've, I've only heard a couple people like outright say this Let's hear and it. I'm more so wanting to bring this one up because I'm sure yeah. that HR leaders out there hmm. might get this same comment and yeah. just like, don't know how to respond or maybe they do, but yeah. Uh, one that I saw on your list was, yeah. I feel like saying I have privilege means my life has been easy. That's oh, just yeah. not true. Oh like, I feel gosh, like this so is like always like a big argument for yeah. like, I don't have privilege. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Oh my gosh. That's such a common one. Yeah. I was just going to say we, well, this has been, you know, I think Daniel and I have been in a situation I'll leave names and places out of it where yeah. like this came up and the exact response was privilege is not a thing. And the follow-up to that was I was an individual in, in a situation where it's the flip of the normal and right. I was pointed out and I was ridiculed and I right. was, and, and so, and we weren't arguing in that we weren't having a conversation about that individual's personal circumstances. Right. We were talking about a construct that right. that Daniel and I have seen, right? Yeah. That, that, that it's a thing, but right. yet the person was like, no, they're, what are you talking about? Really? That's yeah. not. Oh my gosh. No. Okay, good. I love, I love this question. I think it's definitely one that 
we need to start talking about because a lot of companies and people are a lot more comfortable talking about isms that happen to people, unfair slights, horrifying things that happen to people and not as interested in talking about the ways in which those things not having happened to your group is in itself a privilege or an easier way of living. So what I like to think about is, so yeah, of course, everyone on the planet, right? We all grapple with a variety of things from grief when you lose a family member to you know, just horrible days at work, awful bosses, upbringings that were less than ideal in one way or the other, different things like that. What, what white and male privilege specifically means, for example, is that, so a white man who had all of those things happen, he didn't also have on top of the grief and the bad boss and the, you know, losing all his money when he was 22 or whatever, on top of that, he didn't also have to grapple with sexism and misogyny and racism. Right. So it's like, it's a privilege to only have to deal with the main things of life, like your sewer overflowing into your kitchen and getting in a fight with your spouse and losing your pet, right? Those it's a privilege to not also have racism in there that affects like everything in your life, sexism and misogyny in there that affect almost every area of your life. And so something else that I'll say about that is the reason it's important to look at privilege in the workplace and not just what's holding people back from marginalized communities. It's a really hard thing to look at because people think it means you only got here because you're white or you're a man or you're straight. It's not because of your hard work. What it really means is you re- you had hard work and you just didn't also have sexism and racism holding you back or other people's ideas of what someone like you should have as their career in this country should have as their aspirations in life. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I love looking at it that way because I think it's easy to, to mask or d- dismiss yeah. privilege with, yep by using statements like meritocracy or yep. rugged individualism like yep. you know you work hard yeah. good things will happen right. and that's great to have a, a culture or a place yeah. where that can that can happen however if some individuals have barriers you know right. unseen barriers that they're yeah. having to overcome in yep. addition this isn't really a level playing field here and I, no, I feel and like that's, that's the part that gets yep. missed. And it's hard yep. to, in in those kind of pressurized conversation situations, yep. it's hard to like to breathe and to, yeah. to be able to articulate a point that hopefully someone else can hear that, that, that isn't seeing this construct of privilege that we're talking about. Absolutely. And I mean, it's not a level playing field by, by frankly, any measure when we're talking about race in America, and it's not a level playing field for so much as it relates to men and women, especially going into the sciences or other male majority fields. And it's not only that individuals got treated differently as individuals throughout their lives. It's also that, for example, with race and ethnicity, generation upon generation were treated in a certain way. So that family, the safety net thing we were talking about at the beginning, right? African-American families in the US just cannot have the same accumulative generation after generation safety net as those who were who were not affected by anti-black racism, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Something something else that that I've heard people say and to Stephen's point, whenever you hear somebody say this, mm-hmm. it's easy to get like really f- flustered right away and dismiss yeah. them. But but something I've heard as like an argument to that there is a diversity problem and that it is harder for for let's say a black man to you know rise to the top of an organization. Yep. What I've heard then usually the response is, well, look at X or like look at this person, like they did it. Yep. Right. Like if they could do it and oh they came goodness. from the worst possible yeah. circumstances, why couldn't anybody do it? What right. do you say to that? <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, here's the thing. That person, so people love to point out the exception yeah. to blind us to the ways in which dozens of other top talent black employees at that company were 
blocked from getting ahead, right? If you just look at the path, the progress path speed, and you look at how fast men are moving up the, I know we're bouncing here between race and gender, but there are so many parallels in terms of who who gets held back and how it works. But for example, women from the first step up, so from individual contributor to manager, supervisor, like whatever it is in the company, if there's for every 72 women that are advanced at that place in the company, a hundred men are advanced at that place. And of course it's spliced by race, like black and Latinx women, and indigenous women are doing way worse compared to white women and Asian women, et cetera. So you can see the rates of progress are extremely slow for women compared to men in the company. And that's way before their it's entry level. So it's not like they've had a lot of time to create create a great track record in the company, right? It's basically based on promise and potential that people are elevated from their first step up. It's like, okay, you didn't F anything up and you're pretty good and you accomplish things and people are plucking you from entry level and they're saying, we think you'd be a good manager. We're, we're bringing you up on power, on privilege, on potential, on that kind of thing. Whereas women of color, especially, but also white women are being asked to prove it sometimes twice, especially for women of color, especially black women being asked to prove that they can do the the job above them like twice or three times before they're even paid to do it. Right. There's a lot more interim director stuff that's, that's given to women of color, especially, and to marginalize people. It's also important to think about, it's not just someone's privileged or not privileged, right? This is like a, a wheel of so many identities. If you have you might be gender privileged because you're a man and your gender hasn't been held against you when you went up for promotions. You might be not receiving racial privilege because you're not white. You might be in a, in a religious minority that doesn't have any of your days off. I'm Jewish, for example. Like I don't get my days. I, when I had a comp, when I was working for a company, I didn't get my days off. I sure do now. <laughs> I give them to myself, but in terms of privilege, it's less helpful to be like, there's privileged people and not privileged people, right? There's only people with more privilege and people with less privilege. And that's helpful to think about because in some circumstances, when I'm in the room right here, I am, I'm the only woman in this podcast. Right. But then if I go into other rooms where it's all women and I might be one of the only white women in the room. And so I would behave differently in those different spaces in the room where I'm with mostly women of color, I would roll back what I'm talking about to do more listening because white people get more airtime. And in this room, I mean, I'm your guest, but pretend we were just three peers. I would try to talk more so that there wasn't like a male privilege thing, like causing me to be quieter. So it's, so it's nuanced and yeah, yeah. I I feel like we could, you know, this is a topic in itself. And, uh, and so I want to shift gears a little bit. So I want to talk about the relationship between culture and diversity in my experience, having led and having been tasked with launching kind of the first mm-hmm. foray into to diversity for the, the company that I was working for, that I, that I was assigned a task for, I believe that the, the diversity and inclusion mindset or gender equity mindset has to be part of like the cultural fabric if you want to be successful in this work and sometimes it you know and that in in, in culture is a very nebulous thing mm-hmm. it's ever it's ever changing mm-hmm. it's organic and and so earlier you said something that just kind of resonated with me on the, related to this topic and you said mm-hmm. i help tech companies match what they're actually like with what they say they're like on diversity mm-hmm. and that kind of goes back to the the point that that I was that I'm trying to make that it's a it's this is a journey right mm. and to to achieve the long term success you you've got to find a way to make this part of your culture in my yep. opinion and so how do you make that leap I think most yeah. companies a lot of companies now are this is a focus this is an area that they they really yep. do want to see results yeah but there, if there's an incongruence between what they're saying and what the diversity and inclusion launches and newsletters are saying and Mm -hmm. what people are actually seeing in manager behaviors and peer behaviors. And so Mm. I I feel like the the incongruence is the source of a lot of frustration for a lot of folks. 
And, yeah. and so I'm curious, you know, with the work you're doing with your clients, yeah. you know, how, how do you, what, is there a roadmap to like start yeah. to, to jump from kind of yeah. where you are and you're, yeah. you're talking the talk and, and actually walking the walk? I'm just curious, like, how do you yes. systematically help yep. organizations and cultures yep. be better? Absolutely. The first thing is to acknowledge that it's not just a, hey, let's come in and have some sort of culture talk and then everyone's going to be good. Because there was an opinion piece in the New York Times today by a lecturer at Harvard Kennedy School who's a bias researcher. And he was like, you cannot focus on changing hearts and minds. You have to focus on actions and behaviors. And the truth is we've talked about this before, uh, you two and I, which is basically like the people whose hearts and minds are going to be awakened to the idea that everyone's humanity is worth cherishing in the workplace and people all deserve a fair, the same fair shot as each other at the juicy promotions and et cetera. So those people, we are already awake enough. And so each company needs to have some people who are already championing something in the domain of gender equity, diversity, inclusion, et cetera. Right. And so once you have a few of those, it's time to shift the focus culture and hearts and minds for a moment to policies and accountability structures that are going to move people along. People want to focus on the softer side of culture first without accountability. And that's where most companies get no traction on the number of marginalized people that work in their company or who stay working in their company. And so Mm. what I mean here is I'm going to bring up something very edgy, which is quotas, because everyone hates quotas. But the truth is, in order to move, uh, there was a a law that made companies have to include more than one woman on their on their boards, and this was in in Europe. And so we have long term data about it. it was in Europe a long they went there a long time before we did here in California, and. What we saw was that the first women who were brought in to be the sort of the token, let's be honest, on those boards of all all male boards, they were seen as tokens. They were not listened to. They were like, you're just here because you're a woman. It wasn't that great for those women. And it wasn't that great for those boards because they didn't get their ideas out there or listened to. The next round of women who replaced those two, uh, the two original women, were listened to, were, um, you know, as as much as a marginalized person is listened to in a majority meeting, but they were listened to more and they were not seen. They didn't feel like they were seen as tokens. And so the, the quota, and then the, the boards could reap the benefits of having a woman in the room and doing things like lowering risk, increasing ROI, et cetera, those things that are proven for when you have a woman in the, in the boardroom, anywho. So quotas and other things like two in the pool for recruiting are tools that in an ideal world you wouldn't need, but we are so far from the ideal world. We need to use some sledgehammers to sort of shift these cultures from the madmen era into the new world where from the boardroom to the bottom, it looks like the demographics of our current society and of our current world. What do, what are some examples yeah. of, of accountability goals or structures? Yeah. For companies that are like, okay, family, you're right. You know, yeah. we we got to be, we, you know, until we take this more serious, we're not going to see the results. You know, so I'm yep. the CEO and I yep. get it. I've, I've got a tough leadership team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we're not all there. This is going to yep. be a journey, but mm-hmm. but I'm ready. I'm ready yep. to actually take steps to drive more accountability. You yep. know, what are some examples of some, you know, for how to 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 dip your toe in the accountability yeah. waters, so to speak. Totally. So first you have to have a target that you're accountable for. So let's pretend this one's about, you know, hiring, right? So hiring or promoting. Perfect. You want to hire 30%. A lot of my tech companies go for 30% women on a team, right? On an engineering mm-hmm. team, for example, because that reflects the number of women coming out of engineering programs. So 30%. Whereas women are usually more like 11% in a company. So it's a big leap, but anyways, that's their target. So how to hold managers accountable, hiring managers accountable for this? Well, you'd be holding the talent people accountable in a certain way to bringing in a certain, um, a certain number of women into, into the hiring. And basically you want to have two women in every final round of interviews. 
A lot of companies want to focus on let's give unconscious bias training to all these people who are doing interviews. You don't need to do that. Save your dollars. Just have two women. Make sure there are two women up to, of course, we're only talking about top talent here as we are the whole conversation Two top talent women, either of whom could be great in the company, right? In your final round, along with however many other dudes and people you want to have in the final round. And that takes away any of the bias against women that would come up in a male majority space. And so anyways, putting into place those measures for talent and then also for hiring for the hiring managers. If the hiring manager is not bringing in women or taking the time to reward their teams for introducing them to women who are top talent in the field, then the best way to do an accountability structure is to use an accountability structure you already have at your company. So this doesn't have to be new and fandangled and what, what is a diversity accountability structure? It's the same accountability structure you'd use right now if that manager kept missing deadlines for the release of your new product, or if that manager was squirreling away money and not doing budget things right. I'm not talking about illegal squirreling away, just like not doing the financial things right and causing havoc within your company, right? So you already have accountability structures for, and so I was just helping a company last week. Some people can't, some people keep misgendering some other people on the team. And they were like, what whole new structure should we create for this? And I was like, what would you do right now if someone was using a swear constantly with your customers, right? Like you'd, it'd probably be like their manager would say something to them and show that it's like in this company, we don't swear in a meeting with our customers, right? Like it's com it's a lot more common sense than, and it's a lot less frills than you would think of. So you get a target you're going for, you start to track people before you start doing a consequence, you show the managers the data. So you say to the managers, hey, look, you have 30% women working on your team. This is the, the current as is, but you're only, when you do promotions, women uh, only you know, 20% women are getting promoted compared to their male colleagues. And so just, we're showing you this right now. Of, this is not the direction of our company. We need you to get better. Here are some supports. And then after a period of time, once they've gotten used to seeing the data about themselves, then you implement stronger accountability measures. At many companies, they are linking inability to hire women and POCs with executive bonuses. So you don't get your executive bonus if you don't do all the things that matter here as a leader. And that's a thing that matters here as a leader. So going back to, I guess, making your company a magnet for diverse talent, yeah. something that you shared with us in our last call that really shifted how I sort of think about it. You yeah. said that 75 to 85% of white people only know white people. So mm -hmm. if your company is mostly white, then that's who yeah. you're going to hire. You then also shared that yeah. if it is 75 to 85% yeah. of white people only know white people, then that mm -hmm. means that 20% actually do know people of color or, you know, um, I guess in the case of finding more women, yep. you know, they know somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think that you said a big reason that I guess white people in particular feel the reason it doesn't happen more is because they feel uncomfortable. They're afraid of tokenizing mm -hmm. somebody in their network. So mm -hmm. rather than reaching out to that person, they reach out to somebody that's like them because they feel more mm -hmm. comfortable. So I wanted to make sure that we got that in there. We didn't get to hit on that. Yes, absolutely. The awkwardness, people don't want to reach out to their network to someone they haven't spoken to in a long time who happens to be a person of color or a woman, because they're afraid that that person's going to be like, I haven't heard from you in a long time. What? You now need a woman to work at your company, but also that's all that's happening all the time. Anyways, is people are reaching out to people and they're saying, Hey, Larry, yeah. who I haven't talked to in a long time, come work at this company. Right. It's not a bad thing to reach out to someone and say, come work in our company. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't, if you're too afraid to reach out to any people of color or women or queer or trans people who are engineers or who are whatever role, then all you're going to do is reach out to the same people who are, who are like you. Right. And then you're going to, then that's way worse, right? That should be a lot more awkward that you're only sending <laughs> yeah. white dudes as recommendations or other people of privilege to the talent pipeline. Yeah. 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 And then, so we're running out of time, but the one last sure. thing that I really wanted to talk about is ERGs. Oh, so, yeah. you know, I guess like post George Floyd, I feel like a lot of this work has been put on ERGs. And mm -hmm. a lot of times it's, uh, people who already have a full-time job that they're mm -hmm. <laughs> they're having to worry about. And then on top of that, they're being asked to take on this work. So 
I guess like real quick, what yep. advice would you give to companies out there that are looking to get more out of their, their ERGs? I think they should define what they want. What's the more they want. If they want, there's two kinds of roles generally for ERGs, right? There's the one, the social, like I want to find my people and network and, um, that's, that's one kind. And the other kind is I want to make the company better for people like us. And so often HR and people roles are tapping ERGs for make the company better for people like us. And that's a job that not only, as you mentioned before, Daniel is perhaps not, they've had personal experiences with it, but they're not necessarily in the field of diversity work. And so it's an unfair expectation to put that work on marginalized communities who are already facing marginalizations within the community, within the, the company, unless you are offering them two things, pay doesn't even have to be a big stipend, but a, some amount of pay that feels validating to the person or time release and, or time release. But most important thing that you can offer them is a seat at the table in more important meetings that matter. So for example, at Frito-Lay, they decided to engage their Hispanic Latinx ERG with product development team. So folks from the ERG who are in all manner of areas of the company came together and gave their focus group feedback from the perspective of being individuals, various Latinx and Hispanic communities. They gave their feedback, which was then able, which created the, the guacamole chip for Frito-Lay, which was the largest product launch in decades. So lots more money for the company, but importantly for the ERG, they got a seat at the table and now they have something amazing on their resume. So it's not just throwing pizza parties where people feel warm and happy because they're sitting around the room with others like them. It's truly helping with the business of the business. Yeah. I, you know, that's, it sounds exciting. You know, I, yes. if I were a part of that ERG at Frito and they were asking for my feedback mm -hmm. on a yep. new product, that's fun. Yeah. Sign me up for that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's how, as a company, can you think of different ways to to leverage your ERGs, not just to you know make it better for the people that work there, but right. how do you product. do that? How do you make the product better? How do you make the customer yep. experience better? Um, I'm sure the list could go on and on. Yeah, I have two video game companies and they're doing that right now. They're running their video games through focus groups of people who work there who are from marginalized communities who are not in the game design room. It's awesome. That is, yeah, that is pretty. Awesome. Uh, what what I love about this and this kind of use, how to better leverage ERGs, is that for me, I think I mentioned this in our last conversation. Sometimes I get triggered by just hearing ERG and it being like part of the cookie cutter approach to launching a diversity late '90s, early 2000s approach to launching a diversity program, and this yep. is taking it next level and actually making use like positive use of the right. team's time that that has been tasked to get involved because mm -hmm. as a diverse individual and I think it was Mita Malik who we had on the show she mm. talked a lot about how companies have good intentions but it goes horribly wrong and Daniel's the one Latinx guy so we're going to put him in every single culture interview now yeah. he has less time to actually so it becomes a burden right, right. Right. where it that that shouldn't be the intent of an mm -hmm. ERG or a program like this it mm -hmm. should be about creating opportunities whether development or uh, developmental or exposure and so yep. i think that's just really 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 awesome uh mm -hmm. example of mm -hmm. kind of the next the next level use of ERGs mm -hmm. totally. um i think it's that time daniel i think it's rapid fire time questions to turn the e i think so all right yeah. let's do it here are the rapid fire questions question 1 how do you define a modern people leader? What are the traits and characteristics? I mean, you know, I'm going to say the modern world's diverse. So understanding the, the various ways in which privilege and power and the isms are at play in your workplace is your job and your responsibility. So that's, I mean, it's important for modern people leaders to understand the modern landscape of who works in the company and to understand not just what crushes the spirits and the careers of marginalized people, but also what truly works to elevate them. Love it. All right. Next question. If you could go back in time and talk to a 22 year old you, what career advice would you give yourself and why? So something I didn't quite realize back then was that people remember you for so many decades after you're in your twenties. 
And even if you think your little job, I had a little job that I did not think mattered back then, but you know, decades later, people are still like, you helped me with this thing. You were there for me. It's helping me think this through. And I really appreciated you. I'm hiring you now to be my gender consultant. Like I couldn't believe how much just the the connections you connections you make as a tiny person in the company with a tiny entry level job really like they keep on fueling you decades later. Yeah, and I and I feel like as somebody that's entering the workforce, you feel so not unimportant, but you feel yeah. like intimidated by a lot of situations, mm-hmm. and you forget that the people that you're working with are also humans, even if they're an executive. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what I thought when you were saying that. All right. Last rapid fire question. If you could fix any HR or people problem with a magic wand, what would it be and why? I would. That was me lobbing up. That was me lobbing up the softball to you. For those watching the, uh, the YouTube version of the show. (laughs) I mean, I wish that HR people and all managers in general, if I could just wave away awkwardness related to all the topics we've talked about today and the too many people, leaders and people and companies in the world in general bow down to their awkwardness and don't invite the top talent person of color to join their team and don't say the thing that needs to be said on a really hard day for a certain community in our world who don't even ask their crush on a date. Like it goes way outside the workplace. Right. But I wish we didn't use awkwardness as such a compass for if we should do something or not, we should just use our core values and be like, it sometimes feels awkward to act within your core values. Yeah, that is something I'm hearing. I I think my my biggest takeaway and also my biggest surprise from this conversation is how fearful people seem to be about these conversations and it and it's just a it's a real bummer that we are where we are today in the world because i think non-workplace stuff probably adding to that um but but also non-workplace stuff is what's making this even more urgent and and more important that we look at these tough these tough mm-hmm. things and that we have these that we can act courageously and so that that's my takeaway here is oh. like Stephen find a place to be courageous and to and to have these conversations with people even when it feels like I should avoid it at all costs because <laughs> sometimes it, and honestly it does it's like really yes. I I'm not I'm not I'm not going there <laughs> but. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the maybe that's the the wrong reaction to kind of mm-hmm. where we're at. Mm-hmm. So we we were blessed to have you on today's show, family, because one of our prior guests said that you were the one person that we had to have on the Modern People Leader. And Kim, shout out, you were right. We absolutely needed to have this conversation. So now I'm asking you the same question: Who yeah. should we bring on to the show next? If you had one or two people that you felt had to be on here. We had to have a conversation. They needed to be heard. Who, who, who would that person be? Okay. Hands down. Someone called M Valentine, who is an HR leader from tech who has branched out and she's a co-founder of something called Anm A N N E M HR Academy, which is I think they call it a soulful trade school for modern people leaders who want to act courageously in today's world. It's, I mean, it's incredible. It's not just the tricks and tools of literally how to be an HR person, like the skills, but it's the soul inner confidence and self-worth to be able to push through those awkward conversations and do what's right for your team and for your company. I mean, it's incredible. M Valentine. Yeah. M Valentine. I'll connect you. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, with that, we're at the final, the final tradition of the modern people leader, one word, one phrase close. We all respond with a word or phrase from the episode that, uh, that we, uh, that we want to kind of end things with. I'm going to come in hot guys, because I kind of stole my own thunder leading into the closing section. And I'm going to go my one word close close is or one word closes courage because i think Mm. we all need a bit more courage 
Mm. I need more courage. Mm. Mm-hmm. You, you want to go next or you want me to take it? I'm going with privilege. All right. And then I'm going to say it's not that awkward. It's not. <laughs> Wait, that's four words. <laughs> it's a phrase, though. Oh, phrase. Okay, one phrase. <laughs> one word or phrase. It, technically, he is correct. But you are also not wrong, Thumbling. That was actually four words. Five if we include is. That is kind of uh, <laughs> tucked in there. But... Uh, on that, we're we're not counting. We're not uh, we're not counting anything. We're not tracking. It's all anything. right. Wasn't my best effort, but uh, <laughs> I'm here for I you. Push through the awkwardness, and you did it <laughs> with courage. <laughs> love it, love it. Well, family, you did this conversation did not disappoint, and thank you so much for sharing. You know the inner workings of you know the conversations you're having and the work mm-hmm. you're doing with amazing brands. How do, how do people find you if they want to learn more about the work you do? Yeah, familyonthego.com. Excellent, excellent. Yes. Well, we frequently have our guests back. I, If you're open to it, we would love to have you back oh, as yeah. well, Family. It was oh, awesome Oh, yeah, this doesn't awesome feel like chat. work at all. Let's do it, yes. All right, guys. Well, we will talk soon. Appreciate Good you all. Bye, all right, y'all. bye. Bye. Thanks for, for tuning in to another episode of The Modern People Leader. We, we really, really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating. It would mean the world to us. And connect with us on LinkedIn. We want to we wanna know what you think about the show. And uh, yeah, you can, you can find links to both of our profiles in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and, and see you on the next episode.